everybody. You're listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. We are going to finish up 1 Timothy that we've been going through this summer, and we're going to look at the final chapter, chapter 6, as we bring this study to a close. It's been a good opportunity to dive into the scriptures to find out what a healthy church is supposed to be, how God has ordered the church how leaders are to function in the church, how the church is to operate. It is a great book of instruction just on how we are to behave ourselves, how we're to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And so we're just going to dive right in to chapter 6. So either open your Bible, turn on your Bible, swipe to your Bible, however you're getting to your Bible. We're going to dive right into 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among God's people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's just stop right there. Paul, again, is going to mention these false teachers. This has been the issue from the very beginning. If you go back to chapter 1 and you go back and look at verse 3, how does Paul start the entire letter to Timothy? He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. There were these false teachers in the church in Ephesus that were promoting heresy, and Paul's been addressing this all along to the young pastor Timothy that he needs to deal with these false teachers. And so Paul brings it around again here in chapter 6 where he talks about if anyone teaches a different doctrine, uh, these false teachers, and he, he basically gives three descriptions of these people. First of all, they're puffed up with conceit. They're conceited. They think highly of themselves. They're always self-centered and conceited. Number two, they understand nothing. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean they don't understand anything about life or or they're not educated. What Paul's saying is, is they have no real spiritual understanding. They don't truly understand the things of the Lord. And number three, they have an unhealthy craving for controversies and for divisions. And it's interesting wording there that Paul uses. It's, it's a craving. It's unhealthy. The bottom line is that these people were depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And they were using their position of power and influence for greedy gain, for material wealth. They were 
preying upon the people at the church in Ephesus, trying to get ahead, trying to win their favor, trying to promote themselves to get rich all through this false teaching. And it was a very me-centered, self-centered, false teaching. And in verse 6, Paul mentions godliness. He says in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment. Paul mentions contentment also in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul has learned to be content, and he tells Timothy here in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's interesting how he combines those two together. Being holy, striving after godliness, and being content in whatever situation God has ordained for you to be in, Paul says that is great gain. Not false teaching, not promoting yourselves, not having a craving for disunity and for greedy gain. That's not gain, but godliness with contentment. He says there in verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world. Um, It's sheer folly to be greedy and materialistic for when we leave the world, we're going to leave the world the way we came into the world. You, you can't take it with you. I mean, Job said in Job one twenty one, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then Paul also says, um, verse 8, If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. This reminds us of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that God does provide for our, basics, our basic needs in life. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your Heavenly Father knows what you need, meaning that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Paul is contrasting the life of a, especially a pastor here talking to Timothy, but all of us 
that what really counts, what's really gained, what, what really our heart should be set on is godliness, contentment, trusting in the Lord to provide for our basic needs, understanding that God is sovereign over our situations and learn to be content in, in whatever situation God has placed us in over against these false teachers that are trying to get greedy, trying to get rich, um, an unhealthy craving for controversies. They're puffed up with conceit. They have no spiritual knowledge. Again, they're destroying the church with this false teaching and these attitudes. And so Paul's going to address the issue here in verses 9 through 10 of this craving or this desire to become rich. And let's just face it, that is a desire, that is a temptation that all of us face. The temptation to become wealthy at all costs. And, and again, we're going to talk about what Paul says and what Paul doesn't say here, because I do not believe if you're wealthy, it's sinful. I do not believe if you're in poverty, that's sinful. I think what Paul is addressing here is the condition of the heart. Paul's not condemning money. Uh, you got to have money to survive. There's nothing inherently wrong or sinful about being rich. There are those whom God has blessed materially. There's nothing wrong with that. What he's issuing here is a strong warning about our desires and the condition of our hearts. That's why in verse 9 he says, those who desire to be rich. And that word desire in the original Greek text means a determined passion or a calculated aim. And the way Paul uses it, it means that there's this ongoing, insatiable, never satisfying longing and unhealthy, inordinate desire to get rich. And then Paul lists three outcomes that basically progressively get worse of what happens if you have this unhealthy longing or this craving. He says in verse 9, those who desire to be rich, number one, you fall into temptation. Now, first of all, it seems harmless. It's a, it's a temptation. There's nothing necessarily wrong with wishing you had a little bit more money. There's nothing wrong with praying for God to help ends meet. There's nothing wrong with wanting God to provide for your needs. I mean, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray for daily bread. That's not what Paul is addressing here. What Paul is addressing here is this incurable, unhealthy desire to get rich that causes you to fall into temptation. And see, when the temptation hits, that's where the choice is. Do you give in to that temptation or do you walk away and resist it? Do you fall into the temptation or do you stand firm in God's power? Because James tells us this progression. In James 1, 13-15, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt, be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The first step here is the temptation. And if you give in to the temptation, it's going to take you deeper, deeper into these paths of ruin. And so you see the next step of the progression, how it gets worse from temptation to the next thing. Paul says, you fall into a snare. The, the snare here is an imagery of an animal being trapped. 
you've probably seen a mouse trap that clamps down on the mouse or, or those huge bear traps with the enormous claws and teeth. Once you give in to the temptation, once you follow through with that, you're trapped. You're sunk. You can't get out, which leads to the third step in this downward progression. So number one, you fall into temptation. Number two, you fall into a snare. And then number three, you fall into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You're plunged into this drowning experience of destruction. Uh, Paul uses some interesting language here. You're plunged into ruin. Uh, what comes to your mind when you think of the word plunged? You, you use a plunger in the toilet when it's overflowing. It means you're sinking, you're going under, you're drowning in destruction. And so do you see Paul's progression here? What started out as a little temptation turned into a snare where you're caught and now you're drowning in ruin and destruction because of this unhealthy desire to get rich. And then in verse 10, Paul provides somewhat of a proverb that I think has been misquoted many times. Read it carefully. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Paul doesn't say money is the root of all evils. Again, we have to have money to exist. Um, the wording is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So again, what Paul is addressing here is the condition of the heart. When your heart is consumed unhealthily with loving money and making money in a very unhealthy way, where you get prideful, where you don't rely upon God, you get stingy and selfish and maybe even neurotic, Paul says this is going to lead to all kinds of evil. It's going to trap you. It's going to be a snare. It's going to drown you. And then Paul even warns that this love of money has caused many to wander from the faith. He says, It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The way you handle money, if you get drowned in it, if it if it's consumes you in unhealthy ways, it can affect your walk with God. This craving, this lustful desire to get rich, this, this can possibly cause you to wander or stray from the faith. And what's the result? You are pierced with many pangs. Uh, now, what does this mean to be pierced with many pangs? I like the way one Greek lexicon says it. It says it, it's to plant in their heart a painful wound. The word pierced here literally means to be pierced or stabbed through with a spike, which you can imagine is physically painful, to be impaled on a stake. See, the imagery here is that an insatiable, unhealthy, greedy craving and love of money and the desire to be rich is like being impaled on a stake or a dagger going right through your heart. It causes emotional anguish and suffering. I'm sure those of you that are listening can give stories of how you've been the victim of the love of money. And you can, you can show the proverbial scar where the spike has gone through your heart and caused this anguish and pain because of the love of money. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money 
will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Notice how Solomon here in Ecclesiastes talks about satisfaction or contentment. If you love money, you're never going to be satisfied. What did Paul say back up in verse 6? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Not financial gain, not monetary gain, spiritual blessing. All right, let's go on to verse 11 through 16. But as for you, okay, now Paul's talking to Timothy now, the man of God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul turns to Timothy specifically and calls him the man of God, which is basically a language referring to Timothy as the young pastor. You, Timothy, you man of God, you young pastor, you flee from all this. Don't have anything to do with this materialism, this greed, this false doctrine, this craving for division, this desire to get rich. There is a huge temptation for pastors to want to get rich. That's a huge temptation. And you see a lot of these televangelists and people that are asking you to give millions of dollars to them so they can go buy their latest and greatest jet. And um, there's, a, there's an overemphasis on a craving for material things. So there's a negative action here. Flee, run from, get as far away from these things as possible, that the negative things are sinful. But then there's a positive, flee from the sin, but pursue or run toward these godly virtues. Run towards, pursue, chase after righteousness. This is the uh, upright conduct where we are to live above reproach. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, Paul uses the same language. He says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So not only pursue righteousness, but godliness, that obedient relationship before God where you are acting like God. Faith, a wholehearted trust in Christ. Love, one of the chief of the Christian virtues, 1 Thessalonians 5.8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Steadfastness, that's that endurance, to face the pressures of being a young pastor that, that Timothy was. And then gentleness, and not being bitter or harsh in the church or j- just in general, that he has a gentle spirit. Um, in 2 Timothy, Paul says, in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, 
Able to teach, patiently enduring, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So Timothy is to run from or flee the false doctrine, the materialism, the greed, the uh, disunity, and pursue these godly virtues. And then in verse 12, Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. Athletic imagery of boxing or running or wrestling, um, Timothy probably made his confession of faith at his baptism, and he's continued to stay strong in that, proclaiming the gospel in the midst of hostility and oppression, whatever would come to him as he pastors the church in Ephesus. Paul says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, to which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Again, that that confession in front of many witnesses was probably his baptism. It could have been when the um, elders laid hands upon him and set him apart for public ministry. And then um, in verse 13, he's charged to um, keep that good confession the way Jesus did before Pontius Pilate. In verse 14, to keep himself unstained and free from reproach until Jesus comes back. So basically what Paul's saying is until Christ returns, Timothy as the young pastor is to have both sound doctrine and purity of life as he perseveres in the faith. And that's the most important thing. If I could say anything to pastors that are listening to this, maybe you're a seminary student, maybe you're a young pastor, a church planner, maybe you're a leader, those are the two most important things that we are to do. Until Christ comes back, are you holding fast to sound doctrine? And number two, are you living a life of purity? And are you remaining steadfast in those? Uh, That's difficult. You need the strength and grace of God. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You need a good accountability structure of elders and deacons and leaders around you and a praying church to encourage you. And that's Paul's charge to Timothy. Until Jesus comes back, there, there's no time to, 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 to take a reprieve. There's no time to take a recess. This is a, a lifestyle until Jesus returns at the proper time. And then Paul ends this section with a doxology of praise. He just kind of bursts out in praise to God. Um, he says there in, in the middle of verse 15, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, This language of God being the sovereign and the king uh, comes from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Revelation 19, 16, On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the sovereign King above all. Verse 16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can seek. God lives in unapproachable light. This this reminds us of the imagery in the book of Exodus at at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 24, uh, verses 15 and 17, Moses went up on the mountain and on the cloud The cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. Uh, This this brightness of God's presence, no, no one can look at God and live. Exodus 33, 20. 
He said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and live. Only God the Father dwells in unapproachable light. You go to Revelation chapter 5, and you see the glorious throne room of God with the flying creatures and the lightning and the thunder and the glassy sea and the brilliant colors and the, 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 the earthquake and smoke and thunder and God in unapproachable light. And so Paul is drawing his attention to um, the glory and majesty of the King of kings and Lord of lords who is the eternal, powerful God who has all dominion. And so Paul just erupts in praise and says, Timothy, listen, this is the God you serve. This is the God you serve, the God who dwells in unapproachable light, the God who's sovereign, the God who's powerful, the God who's glorious, the God who sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross and rise again and who's going to come back at the appropriate time. And so until that time, with the vision of this great God in whom you serve, who dwells in unapproachable light, and the fact that Christ is coming back, you, young Timothy, flee these sinful passions and pursue godliness and contentment and persevere in the faith leading the church. And then for some interesting reason, it almost seems like Paul should have stopped the letter there because he ends it with amen. He's, he's burst out with this doxology of praise. It ends on this crescendo of the powerful king of kings and lord of lords who dwells in unapproachable light. And then he goes back to this issue of being rich which evidently must have been a problem in the church. There must have been something in these false teachers that was causing major division in the church with people desiring to get rich. So let's, let's continue reading to the end of the chapter, the end of the book, of verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So this is a different group of people. This is not false teachers that are desiring to get rich through shameful means. This is actually to people in the church who God has blessed with wealth. And there are people that God has blessed with wealth. And so, again, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with being financially um, stable and having wealth. Uh, Paul just gives some directions here for how the wealthy should respond to God's blessing. That they're not to be haughty, uh, thinking, man, I accumulated this wealth myself. I'm going to put myself in a position of superiority because I'm richer than you. Um, They're not to set their hope on this because... Easy come, easy go. He calls it the uncertainty of riches. Their trust should always be in Christ who provides because the material wealth that you've received is ultimately because God has gifted you and blessed you with that and it could very easily be taken away. And that because you've been materially blessed above and beyond what others have, Paul says in verse 18, be ready to to share, to be generous. Uh, The rich should be generous, not stingy. They should be willing to share their resources. They're storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. They're laying a good foundation. They're being good stewards of how God has blessed them with material wealth. 
And then he has a final word to Timothy here in the last two verses. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. The last thing Paul wants to say to Timothy is you need to guard the deposit entrusted to you. That terminology is used all throughout 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Guard the good deposit. Well, what's the good deposit? The good deposit is the sound teaching of the faith that Paul had handed down to Timothy. As a young pastor, he is to protect the doctrine, teach sound doctrine, lead his people in sound theology, be proclaiming the true gospel, not to get caught up in heresy or into um, irreverent babble and into Gnosticism and all these things that are going to sidetrack. Stay in the text, preach the text, preach the word, guard the word, lead the people in the word. Because what's happened, Timothy, Paul's saying, is that there's been a lot of people that um, have swerved from the faith. There's people that appeared to be Christians, and they started out well, but they were false converts. They've, they've fallen away. Not that they lost their salvation, but they proved that they were not saved in the first place by swerving from the faith, whether that's through false doctrine, whether that's through the cares of this world and riches overtaking them. I'm kind of reminded of the parable of the soils that Jesus tells about the different soils. And so Timothy needs to guard the good deposit. And the very last words Paul says to Timothy are, grace be with you, which I think is very, very important. How in the world is Timothy going to do this? How's Timothy going to lead the church? How are these false teachers going to be confronted? How's he going to teach? How's he going to preach? How's he going to minister? How is the church going to function? How are elders going to be raised up and deacons going to be raised up and, and men leading out in prayer and women uh, leading out and being examples to other women in godliness? And how are all these things, training yourselves for godliness, all the themes that are in the book of, of 1 Timothy, how are, are all these things going to happen? Is it through sheer willpower? Is it through welling up inside of ourselves some type of motivational self-esteem to, to just do better or try harder? No. No, it all comes back to grace. The only way Timothy can pastor is by God's grace. The only way the church can function properly is by grace. The only way elders and deacons can lead is by God's grace. The only way you as a Christian can function the way God has called you to function in the life of the church, in the life of your family, as a fruitful disciple of Jesus is by God's grace. And so we need grace to be with us all the time. Not only were we saved by God's amazing grace, but we are sustained by God's amazing grace. And so the last word we want ringing in our ears as we hear the book of 1 Timothy's grace be with you. The gospel of grace. May it empower you. May the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ empower us by his grace to live the kind of life that he's called us to live, especially as we function as the church. Well, that concludes the book of First Timothy. I've enjoyed teaching through this this past summer. I hope it's been beneficial to you. 
These have been a little bit shorter podcasts, but hopefully that's a good thing for you. Uh, We're starting the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, and so you can begin to listen to that or go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page or my own Facebook page and watch the live streams. Uh, Sunday mornings, we're going to be starting the book of Exodus, so you can also watch those videos as well as listen to those downloads. Those will be coming up here um, on the podcast feed as well. And so um, we're excited about what God's going to be doing. Um, I've got a lot of things in the burner. Uh, We've got a small group we've started with young 20-somethings, and we're going to be going to the book of Daniel with that. Um, I'm starting a leadership training institute with about eight men where we're going to be going through theology and spiritual leadership. Um, And so there's just a lot of things going on in the life of our church as far as discipling people and encouraging people in their walks with Christ. And so um, I'm thankful for what God's doing um, in Emmanuel Baptist Church. And I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. You can do us a favor by going to iTunes and giving us a positive review and rating, or you can share us on your social media platforms, or you can go to seancole.net to find all of our contact information. Well, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you, cause His face to shine upon you, and until next time, when you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.